So on Sunday the 14th of January, here in 2024, the day after St. Knut, the patron saint of the Danish kings, my country saw something that hasn't happened for about half a century. It was the proclamation of the 54th monarch of Denmark, one of the world's oldest ruling dynasties, uh, which was founded by King Gorham the Old, father of Harold the Bluetooth, distant ancestors of King Frederick X, who this Sunday here followed his mother, Queen Margaret II, as regent of Denmark. Now this event in itself is kind of sort of historic, but it's difficult for me to not see some meaning patterns surrounding this event. And I actually think that reading these kind of patterns is a good practice. Signs and voices in the world, because it is a path out of this reduced modernist perception of the world. Uh, it is a way of starting to allow animacy to uh, move in our lives and, and, and be visible, engage it in the world, you could say. If you value my work, then consider if you'd buy me a beer if we were hanging out some Friday night. You can actually do that. Keep this channel ad-free and completely independent. So through Patreon, you get priority access to videos, exclusive content, and discounts, and so on. But mainly it's just a way of saying, cool beans, dude, I'll help you survive doing that stuff. And also don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell and all that. I also just want to use this chance to voice some of my own kind of conflicted thoughts and feelings about kings. Conflicted because about 99.99% of the people that I associate myself with politically are in blank, steep, unambiguous rejection of this ancient weird institution. I'm not actually, I do see some problems, but I think monarchs are somewhat better than their rather dystopian rep on the political left. And I think that there are some animist perspectives to consider around this institution, because it is an institution that emerged when culture and society and perception was overwhelmingly more animist than it is today. In fact, I suspect that this is part of the reason that many modern people are so fiercely rejecting monarchs, because it's it, there's something, this animism kind of tickles a modernist counter-reaction somehow. So I suspect so I suspect that the general Republican image of monarchy is a little bit 18th century France-ish. It's like these outrageous ultra-consumers who are sucking every drop of life from their impoverished subjects who are dying like flies in the gutter, you know, in order to sustain some grotesquely luxurious lifestyle. You know, that's kind of the image, right? It's not 
you know, yeah, the king of Norway, who's taking a public bus to go skiing or gently admonishing his people to meet queer persons with respect and kindness. Yeah, anyway, I recommend, by the way, some of the considerations on monarchy by the British anarchists uh, David Graeber and Wengro, who speculate how the institution may have emerged uh, from seasonal rituals, play kings and carnival kings, spring queens and all these things. But at some point in history, this ossified and became these more static institutions. There was indeed a period where kings were basically the most predatory, violent, elite bastard who were most could most effectively manage to murder his way to the throne. But then at some point in history, what happened was that we got what is called absolute monarchy. These kings whose power were absolute. And at the time, this was actually part of a strategy to create a kind of equality, actually, basically because it was a step towards neutralizing uh, the exploitation of a very predatory elite over commoners, the noble caste. Because if the power of the king was absolute, then everybody else was obviously equal in relation to this absolute royal power. But of course, be that as it may, uh, you know, that, that, that something may have been in a, a step in the right direction uh, 200 years ago. That doesn't necessarily imply that it's not perhaps an outdated institution today, of course. But there's more. When the rule of kings was re replaced with democracies here in Northern Europe, a new model to create coherence in the state was needed. That became the nation or the people, nationalisms. Now, nationalisms historically follow democracies as that new model for building coherence that replaces this weirdly medieval idea of the state condensed in one human body, the monarch, right? And nationalisms, they have this sort of inherent tendency to breed bigotry. Monarchs, on the other hand, are actually rather inclusive figures. Monarchies, they don't need to be monocultural. Um, and this is partly an imperial power language. The dominated are a plurality, you know, that's a greatness of the ruler. So, you know, when, for instance, a Danish monarch goes to Greenland, like Queen Margaret here, and wears an Inuit attire, then that is part of an imperial power language that is saying, you are my subjects. And there is a history of oppression uh, behind that. But she's also saying something else, isn't she? She's also saying uh, something along the lines of, as a regent for you, I am also Inuit, which is a much kinder and more inclusive message, really. And this is probably part of the power that these monarchies yield, their capacity to hold such contradictions. And I think it's part of the reason that places like Australia and Canada, that they're still kind of hanging on to these, you know, monarchs who live, you know, half a world away from them. And I think it's also why uh, kings are probably, you know, the most interculturally mixed families that there are. The present king is half French. His, his wife is Australian, you know, if it even makes sense to attribute nationalism to the, or nationality to these people. I'm actually not really sure. Is the king actually a Dane? Historically, they used to shift country quite liberally, um, and they don't seem to have 
any qualms really marrying people who don't pass as white, for instance. Uh, racism is not, a king can of course be racist, but it's not, it's not inherent to royal, uh, to the monarchy. I don't, totally don't think so. And marrying outside, by the way, their little European royal in-group, that probably wasn't the worst idea they ever got. <laughs> but I think there's something about the iconic charge of monarchs, which is somewhat contrary to nationalism. Um, and what you also see historically is that cultural oppression <clears throat> actually follows democracy, because nationalism comes with democracy. Oppression of the Sami, of the Jews, of the Frisians, and other minorities, that amps up significantly when the democracy-nationalism complex is implemented. The transition to uh, democracy here in Denmark was immediately followed by a rather bloody civil war, where the uh, low German-speaking people of Schleswig-Holstein, they were forced under the Danish domination. So if I had the power to actually change stuff, I think what I would say is that these constitutional monarchs, they seem to carry somehow in them this potential for amending, basically be a counterbalance to some of these unfortunate side effects of the democracy-nationalism complex. And that is bigotry. So I would basically uh, root for fixing it constitutionally that being a patron of inclusivity, you know, that which is that inclusivity, which is sometimes compromised by nationalism, that that is part of the task of the monarch, it's part of the role of a monarch. Uh, we have seen King Harold of Norway uh, actually stepping into this royal role very convincingly and speaking beautifully about Norwegian-ness as inclusive, both ethnically, ethnically and sexually. But there's also something about this royal model which is just super relational somehow. There's this idea that this community is condensed in one human, really. That is something yet that you can feel, and perhaps it's something you're supposed to feel or something. You're supposed to feel something for this person, and boy, that was something that you could feel in Denmark around this change of regent. There's somehow, there's an incredibly deep emotion uh, you know, uh, tied up with this. And I feel it myself, you know, in spite of all my leftist bravado and all that, you know, I feel it somehow. This one individual, Margaret II, who has sort of iconized this, this, this country for as long as I've lived, there's something deeply touching about her stepping back and then, you know, her son, which is about my age, he's a bit older, uh, than becoming king. There are intense emotions steering somehow in the, in the population around this. And I'm not really sure exactly why that is, but I think this, all this emotion, I think it springs from monarchies being somehow very relational. It's, it's more natural somehow to feel something for another human than it is to feel for the abstract idea of the nation or the greatness of the nation and, 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 and so on. And this relationalism, is not only something that relates to the, the actual human community, it also somehow touches or reaches into the other than human, actually. 
There's a tradition in Europe, uh, also in parts of Africa and Asia, where these monarchs, they come to function almost as these kind of hubs of connectedness, so they can be seen as the descendants of a sky god or a thunder god or a river god. In fact, these, this Danish dynasty, it reaches back into this kind of heathen mythology, which I admit is also part of the reason that I have a little bit of trouble saying, well, let's just scrap that whole thing. You know, this particular dynasty, it goes back to the Skildings or Skjöldungar, the descendants of Odin. Skjöld, Odin's son, he married the goddess Gevjun, who created this land as the gods traveled through northern Europe. They settled in Lyra, the site, by the way, of the octennial celebrations, and fathered this dynasty. And whatever that means today, what it means to contemporary Nordic animists, I'm totally not sure. But this is just to say that there's deep emotion bound up with something that is very relational and tied in with, with uh, Nordic mythology. So this is just to say that if you want to speak from a contemporary Nordic animism position, then there's something about at least these constitutional monarchs, which is a, it's a little bit hard for me to just reject right off the bat. The relational inclusivity and this rootedness in ancient myth, actually. However, you know, if you look at Scandinavian history, you also see animist arguments against, I think, you know, the centralization and state formation that is part of these monarchies was accompanied by a trend towards abstraction, primarily articulated in Christianization, which did not serve animist culture of land kinship. And I recommend, by the way, Matthias Nordvik's podcast, Sacred Flame. Uh, he has some episodes where he's talking about elite power and how uh, it developed through North European history. But thinking from this animist perspective, it is also a little bit hard for me to not see the signs around this change of region in Denmark. First, the abdication of Queen Mar Margaret fell on the closing night of the Aun year. Basically, in and that night where the new Aun cycle began, right? The, the closing night of the Aun year where we, for the first time in a millennia, you know, have tried to recover, retrieve the ceremony for healing in the circulation of power, celebrating the symbol of Aun's death, the healing in the old king being replaced. Margaret II is old and her son has an age where I guess it's probably a good time for him to become king. And this appears to me as a symbol of the Aun logic. It dialogues, or we can read it into dialogue with the Aun year. I'm also pretty sure that, that these people, they're not aware that the specific dates of the change seems to be charged with animacy. January 13th is associated with Saint Knut and thereby the patron deity of the Danish monarchy. That saint, which in my view, came to take the role of Odin, the patron deity and the divine ancestor of this 
dynasty, actually. So the king is proclaimed on the day after St. Knut, inside that interregnum period where we are waiting for the first Yule moon of the coming eight-year cycle. And by the way, uh, Danish monarchs, they're not crowned like the English king in these spectacular ceremonies that centers uh, on the anointment, which basically makes an English king God's chosen representative on earth. Uh, this very powerfully religious symbolism has sort of been skipped in, in, the, in the Danish uh, democracy. Um, but uh, this small proclamation speech held by the king at the uh, proclamation of his, his, his kingship was also rather remarkable. Notably, he did not mention God, but he rather expressed his wish for support from that which is greater than us. And it is remarkable that the head of the Church of Denmark does not mention God at all at this extremely ceremonial historic moment nor in his motto. These kings have mottos, right? His mother's motto was God save Denmark. Her predecessor and father had with God for Denmark. The king before him had my God, my country, my honor. His father and I could probably go on and it wouldn't be the most exhilarating genre of expression that you have ever encountered. This king, Frederick X, he has in Danish forbundne, forplichtet, for Kongel Denmark which would roughly translate as connected, obligated for the Kingdom of Denmark. Well, poetic verve might not be a strong suit, but uh, the participle connected for Bunne is interesting. It's conjugated, so it seems that we're talking about a host of people. They are connected, or probably he means we are connected, right? So here at the closing of the Aun cycle, where we for the first time in a millennia have called for connectivity in the image of the demise and replacement of this old ruler. On these highly charged days, at that point we see this change of power that seems to dialogue with these ancient patterns, really. You know, we see pro proclaimed a new king in this ancient dynasty of the Skildings, a dynasty that we read about in the mythology, this line of kings that reaches so far back that distant representatives of this dynasty probably stood out there in Lyre, not so far, so far from here, when these heathen octennial celebrations were still taking place, at exactly this time of year when this change of regent is playing out. You know? And what is more, at this historic juncture, this new king hails connectivity as the primary value, connectivity, right? while subtly but unmistakably he steps away from his adherence to Christianity, actually, and which is not only expected, actually, adhering to Christianity, but legislated. You know, they have seriously considered whether it's actually an infraction of the human rights of these monarchs that they are constitutionally required to belong to the Danish uh, church, which is crazy on a whole number of levels. I dialogue with this as deep voices and intentions that are waking up and moving in our world, moving in the direction of animism and kindness. So the Nordic Animism channel raises an 
ambiguously, kind of, let me call it, reluctantly royalist toast to King Frederick X and his Australian Queen Mary. Best of luck to you and uh, may you become a voice for that connectivity in our broken world. Cheers. See you around.